Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Anthony Zhang, co-founder of VinoVest. At a high level, Anthony has been succeeding in the stereotypical tech startup life. He started his first venture in his dorm and made the decision to drop out of school to build that venture, which he ultimately sold. Along the way, he's gained investment and support from Mark Cuban and Peter Thiel, two hugely successful billionaire entrepreneurs. Anthony's success is remarkable, but he also dives into the emotional side of building and financing startups. He shares with us that it's far from glamorous, and even despite his successes, he can still stumble into negative thinking and comparison. Along with talking wine, whiskey, and the business model VinoVest, Anthony takes us in depth on how he's fundraised, including his process for booking meetings with investors, and then strategizing his approach and his investor pitches. This was a great interview, and I'm sure you'll enjoy. And if you're interested in learning more about the key strategies and tactics for attracting, engaging, and retaining investors, there's a masterclass for you. We created this, and it covers everything you need to know about how to build successful investor marketing programs for public companies. If you're a CEO, CFO, or IR pro, be sure to sign up to this at creativereturn.ca masterclass. Your investor marketing program should be an accretive use of capital, so be sure to access it at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass or click the link in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Corey. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah. So you and I had a pre-call and we got to know each other right as Silicon Valley Bank was going under. And as I understand... You had taken your money out of that bank just in time. I mean, and I bring this up as perhaps a way to start out our conversation of your entrepreneurial journey and what that is. And so tons of interesting things you've done. I think we're going to have a really good interview. The best place for us to start is a discussion of your history, your past, if you can, you can give us that. Yeah, absolutely. So where do I start? Maybe at the start of my entrepreneurial journey. And that takes us back to freshman year of college at USC. I was there studying business. So the goal for me was always to start or join a business one day. But I really thought, I think like many others, that you had to get into a good school, get some good internships on your resume, and then get a good job after college. And then maybe that job will help you go get an MBA. So then you can learn how to build a business. And then after that, maybe you're lucky enough to start one when you've got enough money. But I think the way that I fell into it was really a dorm room side hustle. It was a food delivery service that I started in my dorm with my roommate. And that turned into actually me dropping out of school in our second year of college, running that business full-time, raising venture capital funding, and eventually having an acquisition. So I think 
really, really lucky to have that be able to fast track things for me. And also just give me that sort of mindset shift that you don't need all these linear steps that I previously thought in my head starting college. There's many ways to get to the finish line. Hmm. Interesting. Now you, you, you point out linear steps versus like kind of step changes. Have you found yourself doing that in your career? And I'm diving in right away. And how has your mindset changed when you, if you're going to go make a step change versus just a methodical step-by-step linear process to success? And we can talk about the very first business envoy now there too, because, you know, I've been running the business. It was an on-demand food delivery app for college students. So, you know, very similar to like your Postmates or Grubhubs of the world. And we're seeing a lot of success. We were in multiple college campuses at the time. And the real inflection point for me was having the opportunity to pitch Mark Cuban. He came to my school as a guest speaker. And at the end of his speech, I had the opportunity to pitch it. Shark Tank style, his executive producer, Mark Burnett, was there too. And I walked away that night with a $100,000 offer for $10,000 or for 10% of my business. And I remember, you know, you know, as a 19-year-old, that's a pretty life-changing moment, right? $100,000 is a, a ton of money. And you know, the implications to value my company at a million dollars, that was at the time, probably the biggest number I could even think of. And talking with him, you know, he was sharing a little bit about his entrepreneurial journey. He had also dropped out of school to start his own business. He was like, why are you waiting for graduation and MBA to start your entrepreneurial dream? You're already living it. And here was this thing that, you know, I was growing it, I was scaling it, but I always had thought of Envoy Now up until that point as a resume booster, right? A, a cool thing to do as an extracurricular to really gain some experience and something to talk about during future interviews. And then, then it just hit me. I was like, wow, like this is the thing. This billionaire and later Peter Thiel, another billionaire, each gave me $100,000 and they believed in me so much. I was like, if they're going to believe in me, I must believe in myself. And I got to take this seriously. I can't be doing school and business at the same time. I got to go all in on business. So that's when I decided to take a leave of absence and dive into Envoy now full time. So that was really that first sort of mindset shift around just the same stuff that I was already doing, but thinking of it as the sort of all or nothing, all in focus rather than just a side business. Wow. So, I mean, if you fast forward to the future now, you're co-founder or founder and CEO of VinoVest, which I want to discuss. I think it's a really fascinating business and business model, but there's a gap of time in between there. And like you mentioned, Peter Thiel, that was uh, somebody else who trusted you with his money and invested in you. And then you became part of the Thiel Fellowship. Tell me about that. Yeah. So the Thiel Fellowship is, for those who aren't familiar, it's a grant program that Peter Thiel runs, um, 100% his own capital. And every year he gives about 20 young entrepreneurs $100,000 each. And it's not investment, it's actually a full personal grant. So he's not taking any equity in your company. It's just his belief in that good ideas, They, you know, some ideas just can't wait right until you're finished with school. And, and that same sort of preconceived notion that I had was like, all right, I'm not ready to start a business, I'm not ready to scale a business. He wanted to really de-risk that right, by giving someone $100,000, which if you're a young student, 18, 19 years old, that's, that's a lot of money. And I think the biggest thing that the Teal Fellowship did for me was give me a community of other folks who were doing this. Right, I was the only person I knew at that point who had dropped out of college. It was very, very lonely. And I really didn't know what to do. Right, I was looking up to other entrepreneurs who were you know, probably 
a couple decades older than me doing the same thing. There was really no peer group. So that's the biggest benefit that I got out of the Teal Fellowship was being able to meet other like-minded founders, share you know, battle stories, things in the trenches, share advice, and really be able to just commiserate too when things are just you know you're having a bad week or a bad month, right? Being able to have, talk with someone who really understands uniquely what it's like, the pressure of running a business as you're still trying to grow up and, and find your own in the world. Yeah, no kidding. It's a pretty fascinating thing that to be that age, 18, 19, you, you put yourself into a pressure cooker like that. And it says a lot to have that support network around you of people that you can trade ideas with and also trade kind of the the war stories and the, and the tough times with. Yeah, it was crucial to our, you know, my development and helped me make a lot of the right moves rather than having learned the hard way. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, this is all interesting, the teal piece. And, and then I also understand that you ended up being part of, I think, a blockchain deal or something along those lines, which became part of FTX. And that's another, you know, relatively topical thing. And so I'm wondering what that was like and how that ended up, how the acquisition, you know, give us some color around that because I mean, FTX in itself is a pretty fascinating story. Not that you had anything to do with the collapse, but yeah. What, what do you know? Yeah. So after I sold my first business on Boy Now, you know, that was around the time of like late 2016. So a lot of people started learning about crypto, really got that bug and started spending a lot of time just learning out the space, right? This new technology, this new currency potentially that could change the world. And the app that I used at the time to track my holdings was called Blockfolio. And was on it every day, like like many of us who got addicted to crypto and was just talking a lot with the team there, right? Whether ideas or customer support things. And that sort of parlayed itself into a job, joining their team as an early employee. And they're still at the seed stage. So over the next course of the around three years, you saw a lot of growth as the crypto market grew as well, and also a huge crash. You know, in, in early 2018, everything kind of collapsed that first sort of boom and bust cycle. So, as their head of marketing and, and running their business development, it was really, really eye opening to be able to see how quickly the tides change, as well as the folks who are in there. Right, You're, you've got to be kind of crazy and kind of a risk taker to be in that industry at that time. But I'm also really thankful because that's where I met my now co-founder Brent. So he was the head of design. I was the head of marketing. Right? We, those two functions are really you know hand in hand when they're launching new initiatives. So we spent a lot of time together. And if you're crazy enough to invest in crypto at that time, you're pretty much investing in everything, right? Whether it be art or antiques or watches, you know, physical or digital. And when we knew we were going to get acquired, Brent and I chatted with each other we're like, "Hey, this is kind of the perfect time for us to be able to start our own thing, right? This is kind of a clean exit." We'd both been entrepreneurs in our past, so starting another company was always in the cards. It was only a matter of time. So being able to have that be really good timing, we started our business uh, right at the beginning of 2020 and launched VinoVest, which is you know still in the investment space, right? So not too far away from cryptocurrency, but you go from you know magic internet money to one of the oldest things in the world, which is wine, <laughs> something that's been around for thousands of years, something that's tangible and real but still shared a lot of the same problems that the crypto industry had and, and still has. And the things that I saw were barriers to entry, right? Lack of education, lack of accessibility, and something that's really sort of complicated to manage storage and custody unless you're an expert, right? Same with wine. There's a lot of 
specific things you need to do to properly store wine. And then also lack of reliable pricing data, right? In the early days in crypto, there wasn't just an exact market price for Bitcoin. Like depending on which exchange you used, you could be looking at prices 5, 10, 15, 20% off from each other. There was a lot of arbitrage opportunity based on the lack of pricing transparency. And that still exists today in the wine world because a lot of the transactions happening are offline, right? They're not recorded. So based on those things, we're like, hey, like we can, and even though this could on the outside seem like the furthest thing from crypto, there's actually a lot of fundamental similarities. And we think that with what we've learned from Blockfolio, we can do a really good job at opening this up to the masses. And that's what we're currently on the mission to do at VinoVest. Nice, man. Well, I want to get into it because I think it's like how you've raised money, how you've approached it. I think it's really neat that your co-founder you know, has a design background because I want to look at the website. I'm like, this is beautiful. Like it just has a great feel. And so I can see that coming through. But before that, how about, I'm curious about the ecosystem that you've been in, in the sense that you've had really great people around, you know, I'm sure you still do. But also like, you know, when you talk about the FTXs or the Teals and stuff like this, how has that influenced you? How have you, you know, tell me about that experience of just being surrounded by the, by an ecosystem for building startups. Yeah, I think as someone who, I didn't grow up in the United States. I grew up in, in Beijing and Hong Kong, right? Like, Grew up with parents who are pretty traditional. You know, they both fully expected me to graduate and just go, you know, maybe get an advanced degree like an MBA and then you know, pursue a great career. It was a pretty big change, I think, just from a mindset and a culture standpoint. And I remember when I told my parents, I didn't even tell them I applied to the Teal Fellowship. I didn't tell them I got through like each round of interview. I only told them when I got in and I'd already accepted it. Mm. So when I told them, you know, they were like, what? Like, you just got into school. You're going to abandon all of this, right? Like abandon yeah, all yeah. you worked for, all the academics, all that. And, and you're like, like, listen, I might be totally overstepping here, but like the traditional Chinese parents. Totally. And their expectations, the tiger, the tiger mom. Parents, it's I definitely have a tiger mom, right? Okay. Okay. So you had like, that was a formidable right conversation you would have had. Oh yeah. It was tough, but not as tough as I thought it would be when it came to the decision because, you know, what I did was also give them the opportunity to learn more about the program, right? It wasn't like I was dropping out of college with no plan at all, right? I'd already had a, a business that was thriving. It was taking off. They saw the track record of the Teal Fellowship program, you know, looking at the folks who had received the fellowship in previous years, they're all very successful. And I think the last thing was that it wasn't me dropping out indefinitely, right? I positioned it as like a, hey, a couple semesters, leave of absence, University still keeping my credits. I'm really not losing out on anything. Still got my scholarship, right? So it seemed like something that was very reversible, right? Very safe as an option. And on the other hand, I'm getting free money, right? Those were all very logical things that my parents, you know, agreed to, right? And I think mostly because you know Peter Thiel is just so well known, right? It's like, wow, like if he does something, right, throws his name behind it, it must have some sort of legitimacy. So the, all of those things really, really helped, and just having almost like a golden ticket, honestly, into that world, right? Because breaking into the world of like technology, startups, venture capital, entrepreneurship, right? It's, you know, especially like 10 years ago, you kind of had to be in Silicon Valley and get that osmosis to like really be in the crowd. A lot different now, right? Just because of COVID and the, you know, remote working. But I moved up to the Bay Area and just everything, living and breathing it, right? Like even your Uber driver is trying to pitch you something on a million dollars. 
idea that he or she has, right? Because they know that like chances are you're passing your son with money, either they work in big tech or they're a VC. So, you know, there's just this like entrepreneurial ecosystem. And I think even though now I'm in Southern California, moved away from the Bay Area, I've still been able to find that. And I think it's something that I've really enjoyed. I've always been able to just connect with those types of people on a deeper level. And it's something that I also spend time out of my week to make sure I maintain those connections and be able to get new connections along the way. Hmm. Yeah, man, it's so interesting. And I guess I ask because I moved to a small town a few years ago, kind of just before, actually, no, we made the choice just before the whole COVID, you know, when we survived the pandemic, another story there and enjoy the hell out of it. I know that I'm going to live longer being here, but I'm finding that you can't replace a community. You can't replace being surrounded by people in person. And so it's hard to not be like, you just don't virtually jump on with a group of people and, and, shake hands and have a drink and, and trade ideas. It just It's a lot harder, right? And it, it reminds me of kind of college versus real working life, right? All your friends are nearby. It's so easy to get events going on together. But now when I'm trying to schedule, you know, a dinner with my college friends, it's like, oh, let's both look at our calendars. Let's look yeah. at our distance, right? Who's some of that kids now, right? It's like, a, it's a huge effort. And both parties seem to be willing to put in that effort to be able to maintain those connections. So it's definitely the case and it needs to be intentional, right? You can't just bump into, you know, a really serendipitous conversation and, and end up kind of that being your thing. Wow. Okay, man. Well, you know, let's talk about, about Vinovest and what you're doing and, and can you give us the high level and then let's unpack it. Like I want to take it back to the days that you said you and your partner were like, okay, let's do this. And so start off with the pitch. So we understand the business. Yeah. So at a high level, wine as an asset class has been around for decades. It's been something that as that wine ages and matures, more people covet it. It fetches higher prices. And as that wine ages and matures, there's also less of it around because people are drinking it, right? If you drink a bottle of a annual supply of 100,000, right, there's just one less. So from a supply and demand standpoint, there's that natural supply curve going down that makes the prices go up. And it's around 11, 12% a year returns, pretty solid returns, right? For an asset class. The problem though, is that it's really hard to access for the reasons I mentioned, right? It's hard to store, hard to value, hard to figure out what to buy and where to buy it. So VinoVest is aiming to solve all of those problems. We've got an all-in-one platform where if you're just brand new to the world of investing in wine, we'll actually create a portfolio for you. We'll actually buy those wines for you. We'll store it on your behalf. So it's not like you're getting a bunch of stuff shipped to your home or apartment. We'll keep it safe, insured, and also give you a re reliable actual market data points on what that wine is being traded for or who else sold it recently. And then you know, at the end of the day, right, we're actually allowing you full access to that asset. So it's not like you're buying shares or a pooled fund. You own your bottles. So we've got some folks who maybe they'll invest 80% of it and drink 20% of it. Right? At the end of the day, someone's got to consume it. So we also allow that sort of full connection with this tangible asset at the end of the day. And that's really what VinoVest is aiming to do. And recently it's opened up on the whiskey side as well. Yeah, yeah, which I want to talk about because I'm a big fan there as well. But when, so you've effectively like, you know, this is a, you've taken and provided access to an otherwise hard to access or hard to manage commodity. And I would imagine there's been a lot of, I mean, when you run into securities issues, effectively you're trading in a security, are you not? Yeah. So I think the key thing, right, when we were about to establish the business is, do we want to securitize this or not? 
right? Because I think the whole fractional and alternative asset movement has been a, a big boom, right? And really beneficial, right? Anyone can own a piece of a Ferrari, a piece of a, you know, 50 million commercial real estate building, right? And the reason why we didn't choose to securitize it is because I think the connection to the actual bottle in case of wine is really important. And I've always been a big wine lover and there is real utility, right? Like if somebody buys a bottle of wine, they can sell it, but they can also drink it. Right? You can't really do that with a fraction of a bottle of wine, right? You can't drive a Ferrari if you own part of it, right? Or you can't live in your, you know, you can't take your share of, of Apple and redeem it for a computer, right? So I think because wine is this sort of like consumable good as well, we wanted to keep it as just wine. So, you know, we're regulated like an alcohol business, like an e-commerce business, but we're providing all this like analysis and, and financial detail to be able to allow folks who do want to invest in it and trade it that same level of access to. Um, and we've also got a more sort of regulated product, more for accredited investors as well, who do prefer the more traditional, like, hey, I'm investing in a fund, investing in shares rather than the underlying asset. Right. So you kind of have the, you know, two avenues there, it sounds like. You know, somebody's got a, they want to write a big check into into this and they look and they say, hey, yeah, it's part of my alternative portfolio, if you will. Then you can do that. And that sounds like that would be securitized. But there's still the opening play of like, come and own your own wine. And yeah, because I think that's a cool factor it. to it, right? There's very few things where you can sell or consume, right? And there's a lot of wine lovers out there as well who you know, may see this as a combination of like a cool hobby and something that they could potentially invest in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about like when you say 10 to 12%, I think that was the returns you're talking. I mean, are we, is that net of all fees after all the service you provide or is that just an industry average? That's just the industry average. And we get that data from this benchmark called the LiveX 1000. So they're sort of the, you know, the S&P 500 equivalent of the wine market. Unfortunately, it's not something that everyday investors can invest in. So it's a purely educational index. So when they calculate those returns, it is not including any sort of like storage or management fees. For VinoVest, you know, we charge anywhere between 1.9 and 2.5%. So you would kind of tack on those fees, which would decrease those overall returns. Okay, interesting. Now, how about building this and financing this as a company? I mean, when I think for the venture capital route, they're looking for, you know, 10x returns is just kind of a quick, generic kind of a statement there. But what kind of potential does this business have? And how did you position it? And I believe you've raised money now. So how was that? And like, how big is this opportunity? And how did you, yeah, how do you position it? Yeah, so we raised a little over $16 million to date from VCs, family offices, angels. And when we were looking at this opportunity and making the choice on if we wanted to make this a venture-backed company or just a bootstrapped company, we saw... A couple of tailwinds that made us really excited. I think number one was just the growing interest and acceptance into alternatives. Right? If you're looking at some of the top money managers in the world, right, they all have overweight allocations into alternatives. Number two, I think, is the sort of growing interest in collectibles. I think collectibles of all sorts, whether it be digital or physical, have kind of experienced a renaissance. Right, And wine is one of those things where there's so many people who are diehard so passionate, right? All of us know a wine, you know, someone who's just a pure wine nerd, right? So we thought this could be something that, you know, kind of plays on that passion, that sort of like social currency aspect of it. 
And then thirdly, it's been around for a long time, right? This isn't some flash in the pan, crypto NFT, like fad thing, right? Or like sneakers, right? They've had a huge boom and bust. Love and drinking wine, investing in wine, cellaring wine for thousands and thousands of years, right? Why hasn't this become a mainstream asset class? And when we looked at the problems, we're like, hey, this is solvable. This is something that we feel like we're uniquely positioned to solve. And we're tackling a, you know, a hundred something billion dollar industry. So those were the things that made us realize, all right, you know, we can grow this in a slow and steady way ourselves, not raise any money. But because of the timing in the market, we think we'd like to raise some outside capital to help us get to where we are faster. Okay. Yeah. Now, how have you chosen to deploy that capital? I mean, you go out there, you do the fundraising. I'd love to hear about your fundraising process and the tranches or the, the series you've done. But once that capital comes in, how do you plan to go out and deploy that? And, and yeah, I mean, there's got to be lessons learned every time. Oh, yeah. I think you know, when we were first raising, which was in the beginning of 2020, very, very different market than now, right? So our capital deployment strategy when we were raising our, our pre-seed and our seed were just, hey, let's build enough of a product and get enough users to be able to get to product market fit, right? The point in which we think it's a sticky product, users are staying, users are referring. We don't really care about revenue. We don't really care about you know crazy growth. We just want to make sure that the people who are on the platform are happy with the quality of the product. So when we were planning out our runway there, it was mostly on product development. It was mostly on design, right? It wasn't spending a third of our raise on marketing or sales, right? Once we got there, then the next raise was, all right, we have a proof point, right? We've got around 1,000 customers. We think we can repeat this at a larger scale. So then it was hiring the sales and marketing function of that. And then you know, today, right, it's all about capital preservation. We don't really know when the market will turn around, right? The VC funding landscape has certainly slowed down. So the, in the past, you know, almost a year now, we've just been working on getting to profitability. So now we're, we're at this break-even point where we can survive indefinitely, not have to rely on VC capital because wine is a very, very long-term asset class, right? These I feel like I should congratulate right? you for having yeah. a real company. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you know you. what I mean? Like it's, wasn't it absolutely mental? I mean, we, yes. we have public venture capital in Canada. So effectively, you, you know, you can take an idea public and list it on a stock exchange. But like the money was just, it was mental. It was bananas, it was right? Like people were raising off of like a napkin sketch, right? Like nothing, like just designs, no real product, no customers, just a huge promise. And VCs were throwing money left and right. right? That was something that was kind of crazy to experience in 2020, 2021 which is why so many startups are now starting to shut down, right? They're like, all right, we can just spend a ton of money on people and throw people at the problem. And, you know, hopefully, you know, if we don't find product market fit, we'll just raise more money and give us uh, some more time. Right? Oh, now that they're I coming back from our money and realizing, yeah, that, you know, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that well is a solution to the problem. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, huh. It was crazy. You know, I was definitely, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was definitely jealous at times of like other peers. I'm like, oh my God, like they're a smaller business, but then they raise way more. Like, what am I doing wrong with my pitch? Right. Or like, what's wrong with my fundraise process? Right. I was definitely self-critical at times, but let's I'm, talk I'm really, about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's dive yeah. in. <laughs> I want to speak about that because I'll be honest, I've felt that before as well. Being self-critical of not achieving enough, self-critical or comparing to others. And I think it's really hard, like, you know, in our 
space, like on the street, right? As you call it. There's a few of us, you know, guys that we, you know, in our 20s, we're having beers and having great times. And they're worth tens of millions of bucks now, right? And listen, money doesn't make everything. But when we play in a game with the goal to achieve and it's measured by dollars, it's sometimes really hard if you don't hit like that. Yeah. And yeah. And so I have been critical of myself and I'm questioning myself if I've done the wrong things, the right things, whatever. How about you? Because I mean, you're in an ecosystem, but that's also a pressure cooker in itself. And you were saying like, you know, maybe I'm not doing things right or not, you're not moving fast. I'm not, not achieving enough. So what's that been like for you? It's not easy, right? Especially as someone who, you know, with just culturally, right? Like always kind of been taught to be high achieving, right? Get straight A's, you know, even in school, right? And the thing that's tough, I think, with especially being a startup founder is that you don't hear about the failures, right? You only hear about the successes, right? Because that's what's being published, unless it's a huge, massive failure, like an, you know, like an FTX or a Thanos, right? But it's like the everyday failures, right? The, the folks who, maybe couldn't raise a round, right? Like no one's going to write about someone who failed to raise a $5 million round, right? That's not newsworthy. But what's newsworthy is, you know, some hotshot 18-year-old who raises $50 million and they're the next Mark Zuckerberg, right? And I'm like, all right, I'm 22. I've only raised $10 million, right? Like it's easy to get trapped into that where the amount of money you raise is the measuring stick of success, which I think now we've all realized is, is definitely not the case. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's like... Another one of our guests, Daryl Heaps, he just made such a great point. He's like, this thing that people think you're winning when you raise money is so wrong. It's like, you know, you won the game because you won X, you raised X million. It's like, no, now you've just got your ticket to admission and now you have to go like do something with that. Yeah. Now the pressure's on, right? Like you got to do something with that money or else, you know, you're letting a lot of people down. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how about... I mean, take me deeper into how you've dealt with some of that, those pressures and emotionally, right? Like there's a psychological game at play here. Yeah, it's certainly not easy. And I think having had times where I did feel burned out, you know, when I started this company, I made sure to, you know, right off the bat, have an executive coach, right? Someone outside of the company, you know, of course, I've got my co-founder to be able to turn to, but like someone outside of the company who's their only goal is to like help me be my best, right? It's the same thing as if you want to, get healthy, you get a personal trainer, right? A dietitian, whatever, right? you kind of do need people around you to help because it's, again, such a lonely thing to do to be a founder. And it's easy to have self-doubt and self-criticism really creep in and, and lead to making bad decisions over the long run. So that was really important for me, you know, start of COVID, which was also when I started my business, very tough as well, you know, emotionally, medically, mentally on a lot of us. So getting a therapist as well. So just really having a team, you know, that's there to support you. I think that's so important because if I can't show up and be my best, then that's also going to bleed into my employees being like, oh, Anthony seems a little off today, right? Like they're wondering about that. But if I can show up and be energetic, be positive, be motivational, that's in my mind what a CEO should be doing, right? Be that sort of force multiplier to help make everyone's days and, you know, help them know that like, hey, things are hard, but we got this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely noticed the having, you know, a counselor or a therapist around to like to just get it out of the head kind of thing and and you know, it helps you and and to your point they're not you know to being positive, being that force multiplier so it doesn't come off to the rest of the team is is so yeah, it's very important. And I think it can be the difference between an up and a down day of sorts and how does that start to compound over time? 
And I used to even feel almost guilty about like taking that, you know, it's a midday. I'm like, wow, I'm taking a full hour of my day, not working, doing this thing for me. But now I've thought of this like, Hey, I'm doing it for everybody, right? Like everyone's going to benefit by me doing this for myself because I need to be able to continually improve as a CEO because the company's growing and we're taking it to new heights that I've never been to before. So I need to be able to up level myself or else, you know, I'm working myself out of a job. Yeah. Yeah. And how big are you by employees now? Now we're at 25. Okay. Talk me through your planning and execution process. And and I'm curious because I've worked with a number of different companies, some of which are like clockwork, others of which are painfully disorganized. And I'm curious how you go about or how you and your your co-founder even starting said, okay, hey, here's the idea. Here's the things we're going to do over the next week, 90 days, year. How do you break that down and keep yourself on track and make progress? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Something that I'm still continually trying to improve, but it's super different in the early days versus today, right? Now, you know, in the early days, it was like, all right, me and Brent, we talk every day. We all know what we need to do. When we come back, we're like, did we do the thing? Yeah, great. Tomorrow, we're going to do another thing, right? And it's so, you know, I almost miss that sort of like nascent stage where, you know, you're under five people, everyone knows what they need to do. There's no levels of management reporting and like, Everyone just knows, right? But when you're at 25 people, which is necessary for growth, right? There's layers of communication now. There's opportunity for misunderstandings, right? There's management. So now it's also, you know, being able to build some process, which, yeah, it does slow us down at times. And I sometimes don't want to have the process, but it's so important to keep everybody aligned and knowing the vision and being able to repeat the vision and constantly be able to sort of like, you know, bang on the drums, right? That's kind of my role now. I'm not in the Facebook ads, right? I'm not taking the sales calls. Well, not always, but I'm now just more giving people the context that they need to be able to make the best decisions for their day, for their week, for their month, right? And empowering them, right? I'm not telling them what to do. They know the company goals. It's up to them on how they want to best achieve it and use their time. Hmm. So really laying out the goals and then just letting people say like, we hired you to go after this. So yeah not micromanaging. And with that, how are you measuring or or recording this? And do you like, there's tons of methodologies out there. Yeah. How do you guys super topical? Cause right. We're doing our Q3 planning right now with OKRs. Okay. Yeah. That's the methodology that we use, right? Objectives and key results. And what we did this time was from the bottoms up, right? As a leadership team, we decided what the three main things the company needed to improve were. And then we left it to each team, each individual to take a look at those three goals and decide what do I want to be directly accountable for at the end of this month, right? What do I want to be directly accountable for between, you know, August and September, right? And they each created their goals, which then laddered up to team goals, which then laddered up to company goals. And being able to see that is also a really fascinating exercise because you can see sometimes how misaligned people are on how to get to a goal. But also on the bright side, you can see like if everyone's independently coming up with the same solution to the problem, that's a great thing, right? That means the company is aligned. That means everyone knows that this is the most important thing to work on. And it keeps them motivated because they came up with the idea, right? No one really loves being told what to do. They love coming up with ideas. They love having that idea being validated by their leadership, by the CEO, and then being able to, you know, hit it and tell the company that you hit it, right? That's a great feeling.
Yeah, yeah. Interesting that the ground up there of actually, you know, putting it out to everybody and saying, this is where we got to go. You tell us. Yeah. And it's kind of scary, right? Most ones are going top down, right? But the ground up method, I think at a certain scale still really, really works. Okay. When do you think that changes? I think when you're at, you know, a hundred person organization, it's hard to do that, right? That's impossible for, you know, employee number 99 to have a, all of the sort of knowledge and time to be able to have the full context of the business. So at that point, it's probably good to do like sub, you know, sub OKRs, right? Maybe they can still come up with what the team needs to do, but team kind of feeds into what the company needs to do, right? So just another layer of, of abstraction. And every time there's a layer, there's you know, the opportunity for, for misalignment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Okay. Man, so many places I want to go. <laughs> there's a lot here. Let's actually talk more about the financing and choosing your financing partners. Was this the kind of thing where you went out and took any money you could find or were you, how strategic were you about it? And yeah, what did you take from that experience? Yeah. So I think when we went out and did, you know, our fundraisers, so we've done three rounds of funding, a seed round, a series A round, and then most recently a, a customer round. But for the more traditional fundraising, right, the seed and the series A, you know, this isn't my first rodeo, right? I've done fundraising for my previous companies. And it was very clear that you have to tranche it out, right? It's almost impossible to have 100% smart money like your dream investor, but also you don't want to have just people who are just writing a check and they'll never help you. Right. So there's ways to kind of tranche that out. And for me, what I want to do is be able to have my dream list, the people who I'd be happy with, and then people who I know will definitely fund the company, but like are not my top choice. So when I do that, I kind of plan everything out. I know this is going to be something that I want to wrap up in say four or six weeks. So four to six weeks prior, I start setting up meetings. I think it's really important to run a parallel process. So even if, say, I email you to potentially pitch you and invest in the company, you're free tomorrow and I'm free tomorrow, I'm still going to say, all right, my fundraise is starting in a month. Please book ahead. Right? So this way, as I'm doing all the outreach, I've got a super stacked calendar for those first two weeks because I'd love to be able to keep the momentum going and take all my intro calls, right? take my second partner call the second week, take my you know committee call the third week be able to get term sheets at the beginning of the fourth week and have multiple term sheets be able to, you know, bid against each other. I think having that discipline is super important. And then also with your pitch, it may be tempting to start on your dream list, but you kind of want to, you know, practice a little bit, right? Get out to the driving range, right? And pitch to friends, pitch to founders, pitch to, you know, investors that you might not really care if you get their money or not. Yeah, so, that's what I, well, I say that often to companies raising capitals start with the people you know are going to say no. And you know, that's your dress rehearsal. And then go to the ones once you start getting dialed into, you know, to that dream list kind of thing. Because like anything, right? It's something that requires preparation. It's something that requires you just putting in the hours for, right? And also I think the last thing is having a thick skin. Don't get offended mm -hmm. if someone says no, because that is their job, right? The VC's job is to pick the top 1%. So 99% of the time, they're going to say no. So if you're getting a 99 no's and one yes, just know that like you're in the range, like you're a target company. If you're getting better than a 1% hit rate, you're doing great. And what were the numbers if you had an, like a financing funnel, a sales funnel? How many investors did you need in the top of that funnel? And how did you run that math to say, okay, this is the number of meetings I need to hit our funding goal? Yeah. So for our seed round, I think I took maybe 80 first round meetings, you know, maybe half of them turned into second round meetings, maybe less than half. And then, you know, even 
know, maybe a, a tenth of those turned into funding yeses. And for the seed round, we didn't have a formal lead. We weren't doing a priced round. So we went with a lot of value add angels. So that's why it was a lot more meetings than you know, I thought it was. I think total, you know, first round, second round, you know, multiple round meetings. I think I took maybe 170 something meetings within a four week period. And then for the series A, I knew I needed a lead. So I was a lot more focused. I think I took maybe like 30 something meetings over a three week period and was able to get a couple of term sheets at the end. Yeah. And so that was, you say you knew you needed a lead on that. Talk to us about that because that's, you know, that is such an important thing is to be able to wave that lead flag. Yeah. And ideally it's a big name. Right. It's like, no one wants to be the first money in, but you kind of need that first money in to have the rest of the sheep follow the crowd. And that's why I think having the momentum and having things be on a really fast timeline on the entrepreneur's timeline is so important. Right? VCs, they'll follow your process if you run a tight ship. But if you're saying like, oh, like wh- how fast are you going to give me an answer on that? You don't want to be waiting on a straggler while someone else has a term sheet in their hand. So for me, it's just being really disciplined, right? Being respectful too when you do say like, hey, like I do need an answer by Friday. There's obviously a you know, an a-hole way to say it and a nice, respectful way to say it. So I think always still being nice, but firm. And I think that also helps to reset the power imbalance quite a bit because, you know, you're kind of going hat in hand asking for money and they've got all the money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important, as you say, like there's a tactful way of applying some pressure. And but then also, I think there is a degree that some entrepreneurs miss out on is the fact that like VCs need deals their job is to deploy capital. And so if they don't have good deals, they're out. And then I think also I want to build on what you're saying there is the perception. If you're running a tight ship, they perceive that and they look and go, okay, this is something, you know, this warrants more of our time. Yep, exactly. Right. I I told the VCs like, all right, I've got four weeks for this raise. This is when we're expecting the term sheet because we've got this really big launch, this brand new customer that we're looking to onboard and I need to get back to building the business, right? It's nothing against them, right? It's like this ship is moving along and accelerating whether you like it or not, right? And whether you want to jump board or not. But this is something that's necessary fuel for the company to grow rather than this sort of like external activity that's different than just the daily running of the business. Yeah. And how comfortable now are you raising capital? Is it something that is becoming easier or is it still a stressful process? Oh, I mean, it always takes a few years off my life, that fundraising because, <laughs> you know, just between the calls, right, you're taking, you know, 8, 10, 12 calls a day. You have to keep the energy up, right? Call number 12 at 6 p.m. needs to have the same energy as call number 1 at 8 a.m. And that's just, you know, really taxing. Right? You're talking a lot, oftentimes saying the same thing and getting a lot of no's, right? Even though I've gotten hundreds of no's in my life, it still is not a good feeling to get a no, especially when you're so personally invested with the business, right? Like it's almost a big part of your identity. So it's like, oh, what's wrong with me and my idea, right? That's a dangerous way to think. But it's just like, all right, you know, just understanding that we both have jobs to do. Right? And if we can link up together, that's great. Hopefully we can have a great outcome together. But I think just separating the business from your own sense of self-worth is really important. And when you get a no, do you look to get feedback on that? Or do you look to revert that no or change that no into a yes? I think once they say no, there's no use reverting it. I've tried. And there have been some no's in which after they heard another investor was a yes, that no turned into, hey, can I come in? But yeah, funny how that happens, right? But always 
asking for feedback, right? I think that's, if you don't learn from a no, then that was a complete waste of time, right? If you can learn from it, make your pitch better in reasons ABC, right? Or maybe there's a part of the story that they didn't really understand, right? That you think, you know, that they thought was a negative that actually isn't, right? Those are great learning opportunities. And that's why I'm thankful for all the no's that I have. Because a lot of them, the VCs actually took the time out of their day to explain or even hop on a call. Whereas a lot of them just could have just ghosted me and, and many of them mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And when it comes to you start bringing term sheets in, you're running this tight process to try to get to a point at like within four to six weeks of knowing you're funded. When do you start bringing in your board and your lawyers to start evaluating terms? And what's that dynamic like? What? Yeah. How does that look? Yeah. A part of my fundraising prep process is at least a month out before I even start taking a single meeting. I get with our accountant, with our lawyer and get everything just fully, fully squared away in terms of the data room, right? Like making sure our financials are ready to go. Every single request that I could possibly get ready to go, right? The legal sort of guidelines ready to go. That's what makes the sort of once you get multiple term sheets, part of the process a lot faster because when you say yes to someone, you want to immediately get into diligence, let diligence be smooth and not drag on and just get that money in the bank so you can keep, you know, keep building the business, right? The, that's the sort of part where I think a lot of people are like, oh, shoot, I need to prepare this. And then it delays diligence and it's not a good look, right? To someone who just was like, hey, we signed a term sheet together, right? We're going to be partners on the cap table. And then now this entrepreneur is looking sloppy or like, you know, having to revise financials, right? That can all lead to a deal backing out. And thankfully, I've never had that before. But, you know, I've I've heard of other stories where VCs are backing out because of, you know, just sloppy diligence or just the entrepreneur sort of pre-funding or pre-term sheet was very different than post-term sheet. Yeah. I want to get a t-shirt made. This is something I've shared before is that due diligence is a user experience. In the sense that you've got to make that as smooth as possible and yeah, don't and have any glitches. Think of it as an afterthought, right? They're like, yeah. oh, if you'd sign like diligence, the thing that everyone, you know, kind of hates to do, right? But it's like, it's totally as important, if not the most important part of fundraising. Hmm. Now, what terms, and sorry if we're going too deep here on the VC funding, but what terms do you look at and have you ever had, you know, some kind of reaction to? Oh, okay. I think, you know, when we're doing early stage, right? I think going with a safe note is the best way to go, right? It's something that most entrepreneurs and investors are familiar with. It's fairly standard and there's not a lot of fluctuation term sheet by term sheet. So you can just issue it and get a wire back within a day or two, right? When you're doing equity price rounds, that's when things start to get tricky. But thankfully, there's a ton of just online resources on what is a standard Series A, Series B term sheet, right? And we've been lucky enough to work with you know VCs that I haven't really had a predatory term sheet thrown at me before, but I've heard those stories, right? Like crazy liquidation preferences on or things like that, or you know, sort of like you know, partial funding by tranches, right? That's another huge red flag that I've started to see more recently, where it's like, hey, we're we're promising you 10 million, but Five million upfront, five million a year later, based on these timelines. Like, no, that's not that's a ten million dollar term sheet, right? So, I think like I've been pretty lucky in that regard, where most of the stuff I've seen is pretty standard. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah, and I think that to your point, like the safe notes and and there's a lot of like standardized kind of 
early stage now because enough checks have been written, enough term sheets have been written. Exactly. Yeah. That's all speed up due diligence as well when both people are familiar with the docs. Yeah. Okay. Awesome, man. Let's come back to VinoVest or VinoVest and you're now moving into whiskey. And so I'm very curious about this and tell me more and what opened up that market and how different is it from wine? Yeah, great. All great questions. So maybe I'll start from the the last question first is how different is it from wine, right? I think the main difference in terms of the way that VinoVest looks at it is you can be able to buy whiskey that is still maturing, right? So in the cask or whiskey bottles that are already you know, distilled and out in the market. There's pros and cons to investing into both. When you're looking at whiskey bottle market, the good thing is that the supply is already fixed, right? You know that there's X many bottles out there and it's purely a supply and demand play, right? The more people who drink it, the less bottles there are, good to go. The part that's interesting in the cask market though, is that there's actual asset value appreciation, right? A four-year-old whiskey is just you know, a lot easier to come by and takes a lot less time to produce than an 18-year-old whiskey, right? And due to evaporation, right, there's also less of that 18-year-old whiskey. So we at VinoVest, we focus on the cask market. We think that is more unique of an offering because, you know, it's pretty much impossible for a regular individual to store an entire cask of whiskey on their own. That's something that you do need licensing and you do need an actual business to do for you. And what we've seen from the data side is that it also leads to much more predictable returns, right? It could be one celebrity posting on Instagram, this bottle of Hibiki 18 and boom, there's no more Japanese whiskey in the market. Crazy, right? But the planning out on the cask side gives you a lot more predictable returns, right? An 18-year-old scotch is always going to be priced more than a 15-year-old scotch because of the brands and the producers who make it, right? So you kind of have a lot safer of an investment when you're dealing with barrels. And that's what we focus on at VinoVest. Wow. Okay. You know, something here reminds me of a, an interview I did with a gentleman named, it's Diamond Standard was his company, Cormac McKinney. And so basically he looked at the commodity of diamonds and said, how can we make this commodity fungible the same way we are with gold bricks or silver? And I'm just, the way he approached this, it kind of, it seems something interesting to like how you're looking at whiskey was he went and calculated the yield curve of the arrangement of diamonds you would need to make a standardized diamond bar, basically putting them in resin. And that yield curve is statistically the exact same as the yield that they come out of the earth as. So you get way more lower grade diamonds than you do top grade diamonds. And so every gold or every diamond bar that he creates is the same yield curve as as the diamonds that come out of the earth. I love it. And so here's how he came to that. I said, how did you figure this out? He said, he's a computer scientist by background. He said, well, I was buying a diamond for my wife to engage, you know, to be engaged. So I ran the math on this like 10 or 12 years ago. And I was just like, I'm like, oh my God, you're fascinating. Like who would have thought of that? And now he's got a very real business that is creating diamond bars with the yield curve based on the statistics of what comes from the ground. Incredible. Yeah, because you think of diamonds, everyone says everything is unique, right? So on the surface level, it seems like such a tough problem to be able to make them fungible. But that's you know, that's a brilliant sort of you know, data and analysis-based solution. Yeah, Diamond Standard, awesome company that's doing really well. Oh, you, wait, you know him. 
yeah, we've, uh, you know, just being in the sort of alternative hard asset space, you know, we've gotten to know their team pretty well over the last few months. Yeah, very interesting team. They're doing an amazing job. That's cool. Wow. Huh. Well, good stuff. How are we doing for time? We've got a few minutes left here. I'm curious about where you find your information or, or things you listen to, the media you consume. Yeah, what kind of interesting things, even outside of business, are you into? Other than drinking those bottles of wine. Yeah, I was about to say a lot of my spare time is on wine education myself and whiskey education. I love just learning more about the viticultural side of it, right? Because every day I'm mostly inside, right? I'm dealing with the numbers side of this business, but the part that sometimes I think is hard to kind of get close to is the fact that like this is a real tangible item. It's grown out of the earth. There's a lot of variables of mother nature, right? And every single time I go to a winery or a vineyard to go visit our suppliers, it just feels like I'm in a whole new different world, right? Like they just care about treating the vines the best that they can, creating something that is enjoyable and the price comes later, right? The monetary value comes later. They just want to be able to create the best product ever. So a lot of my spare time is just kind of daydreaming about owning a vineyard one day. I'm learning more about viticultural aspects and you know, got a, a little garden in, in our backyard where I'm growing various things. And it's a really nice sort of change of pace being able to like work with my hands and things like that from, from my everyday, which is being on business meetings and, and looking at numbers. So a lot of my sort of entertainment is on that side. And then in terms of things that I, I consume, I'd say probably to my detriment, and a lot of it is, is coming from Twitter. I think like a lot of us is just getting that live, real information, something that I'm looking to reduce my exposure to, but it's still, I'd say, a, a pretty big cornerstone for me in terms of information gathering. Yeah. Yeah. It's a blessing and a curse, social media. Yes. I agree. Yeah. Well, fascinating. I've really enjoyed our conversation. If you're ever coming up to British Columbia's wine region, the Okanagan, just let me know. That's where I'm at. Perfect. Yeah. I had wine from there. My mom's in BC as well. So okay, uh, definitely come up there a couple of times a year. Awesome. Well, you'd be shooting me a note and any final thoughts for us? No, I just really appreciate the time. I think, you know, hopefully the listeners who took the time out of the day, found some value in it and just appreciate their time as well. Awesome. Anthony, thanks so much, man. Really interesting, fascinating business and fascinating journey of yours. So appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.